amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dark Cast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Welcome to the final installment of Brew Crime's Powerful Women with Powerful Podcasts January miniseries. Today's episode says a big ol' hello to Thrice Cursed, a true crime and paranormal podcast. Rebecca Rosewood is on the scene to help you keep your curses hexy and your hexes sexy. The show is dedicated to telling lesser-known true crime stories with an emphasis on the unsolved in as empathetic a way as possible. She is also dedicated to getting the facts as straight as possible, something I think we all could use a little more of these days. In the episode today, heavens to Betsy, a.k.a. Gary Lee Schaefer, Rebecca almost has a mental and emotional breakdown as she tells you all about the gruesome rape and murders of three young girls, as well as the sexual assault of another in Springfield, Vermont. So pop a squat on your barstool, order up your favorite brew, and tune in to Thrice Cursed. Hello, I'm Rebecca Rosewood, and this is Thrice Cursed. Warning, Thrice Cursed is a true crime and paranormal podcast. It is intended for mature audiences. Some graphic depictions of violence and other unpleasant material may exist beyond this point. For more specific content warnings, please reference the episode notes. Just like last week, I'm coming to you with another heavy-hitting, truly devastating case out of my dream home state, Vermont. If you're tuning into this at work, and you either aren't working from home, or driving, or just have to deal with people... Maybe hold off until you can be somewhere private or simply safe to cry. Hey, Simply Safe, sponsor me? (sighs) Anyways, I hope you got a laugh from that because there won't be much laughing in this episode. 
Seriously, I had to stop writing like eight times because I just kept crying. And if that tells you the kind of crybaby Luke has to deal with, <laughs> uh, isn't he lucky, you guys? He's just the greatest. Ugh. I wouldn't want to put up with me. Seriously, do you know how many tissues we go through? It is insane. Anyways, since this is a long one, I'm going to cut the preamble very short and just get into it. Uh, seriously, my notes are my entire script is 16 pages. So <laughs> here goes nothing. Sorry in advance. Today's tale starts off with 13 year old Sherry Nastasia. Sherry's parents had been divorced, and in July of that year, Sherry and her younger brother moved to Springfield, Vermont to live with their father. Their mother lived in Florida, and their father, John Nastasia, was a truck driver for an oil company. He was on the road most days and couldn't always arrange for someone to watch his children. Sometimes they'd be with a neighbor or a babysitter, but most often, it seems like they were on their own. Police officers in Springfield became accustomed to seeing Sherry and her 11-year-old brother outside after dark. As time went on, she was seen with her brother less and less. On August 28, 1979, 13-year-old Sherry Nastasha was shopping in the Springfield Shopping Plaza with her younger brother before splitting off and going out on her own, as usual. Just like most nights, she had no particular plan or destination. Tonight wasn't most nights, though. Sherry Nastasia of 43 River Street, Springfield, Vermont, didn't come home. She was reported missing the very next day, and an investigation began. As I briefly mentioned, police had become familiar with Nastasia, not just for her seemingly constant presence outside, but also because there were some seedier parts of town that the police had grown accustomed to keeping an eye on, and more and more frequently, they began seeing Sherry there during the summer. Police spoke to some of the people that frequented those areas, and no one seemed to know where she went. Soon enough, their investigation turned up a vague clue. A man who had a room in the same home as Nastasia. I'm guessing that means a renter, but I could find no clarification on it. I, I don't know. Uh, so this man said that he had seen Sherry walking along River Street sometime around midnight that Tuesday. This man noted that a dark green car that resembled a Pontiac Firebird had slowed beside her, and after a few moments, the vehicle stopped and Sherry climbed in. This was the only lead the police force had to go on. An official police report was finally printed in local papers on September 5th. Sherry was described in the report as female, Caucasian, age 13, 5 foot 2 inches tall, Slender build, blue eyes, and long brown hair. She was last seen wearing a blue sweatshirt and white shorts, getting into a 1970 to 1974 dark green Pontiac Firebird on River Street. It was unknown at that time if she knew the driver. A clerk in the Springfield Police Department stated that authorities were concerned immediately about her disappearance, as Sherry didn't have it in her nature to do something like that. Another source I found stated that this was exactly the type of behavior Sherry exhibited, however. So I'm not too certain what to believe here. Um, I'm going to err on the side of disbelief, though. I kind of doubt that she would leave her brother and not say anything. 
not to mention I know what happens. So <laughs> anyways, unfortunately, this concern wasn't unfounded. On December 13th, 1979, three and a half months later, a body was found in the snow by a trucker in a pull-off area along Vermont Route 103 in Rockingham, just a short distance from the state police barracks. Within days, the body was identified as that of Sherry Nastasia using dental records. According to one officer, her body was in such a state of decomposition that there had been no other methods to identify her by. The officers did their best to clear the snow and thoroughly examine the area for any evidence, but aside from the body, none was found. According to state medical examiner Eleanor McQuillan, several of her bones had been broken, including multiple ribs and a leg. She was unable to determine the official cause of death because parts of the body were missing. Though she did conclude that she had probably died of strangulation, as the hyoid bone, the one in the neck that tends to break when someone's strangled, was missing. Sherry Nastasia's death certificate stated that she met a probable violent death. At the time the statement was released in January of 1980, police detective Robert Haynes said that investigators were still working the case, but so far had turned up no leads. They'd interviewed many of the people that frequented the same places as Nastasia, even going so far as to have them take polygraph tests. Many men who provided solid alibis didn't pass them. It's likely that this was because they had other things in their past that they wanted to remain hidden from the police. A majority of them were certainly guilty of crimes, but none of them involved the disappearance of Sherry Nastasia. One of the detectives recalled, Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, right from the beginning of that case. Police began to feel that this case would never be solved. Even in August of 1981, when another young girl went missing, the thought that this could lead to the man who killed Sherry was the farthest thing from the minds of detectives. The two crimes didn't appear to be connected, at least not yet. Early on the night of August 29, 1981, Springfield local 12-year-old Teresa Fenton asked her parents during a car ride home if she could go on a quick bike ride before dinner. She and her parents had had multiple conversations about the murder of another 12-year-old girl, Melissa Walbridge, earlier that year and adhered to a strict safety code. I am just going to take a second to note here that the murder of Melissa Walbridge doesn't tie into this case beyond this point. I merely included this to explain the Fenton family's level of precautions because without it, it would seem a little bit over the top. Her parents knew where Teresa was at all times, so they discussed her bike route. Teresa wished to make a four-mile round trip from the family's home to the Cheshire County toll bridge that connected Charlestown, New Hampshire to Springfield. Her mother said no, that was too far. She could do a two-mile round-trip bike ride that would take her along Old Connecticut River Road and back. By the time they arrived home, the family was in agreement. After tying a bandana over her hair and getting her bike down from the barn, Teresa had a quick conversation with her father, Richard. Then, she headed down the driveway, off on her bike ride. She pedaled down the US-5, away from her home. Part of the safety code her family had devised included situations like this, her bike rides were always timed. Teresa had 40 minutes to return home and a 10-minute grace period. 
Her mother, Barbara Fenton, said, We would challenge her to do a length in a certain amount of time. That was planned to help us pinpoint problems if things went awry. If she was late, we had made an agreement to go out looking for her within 10 minutes. Teresa missed her 6.30 p.m. window that evening, and within 10 minutes, her parents were out searching. The Fentons didn't find their daughter, and the police were called. While police began to organize a search party, the Fentons, joined by neighbor Richard Craig, started a more thorough search of their own. The Fentons went in one car, and Richard, joined by a companion, went in another. Richard ended up on the river road Teresa had agreed to stick to. As it got dark, he shone a flashlight into the areas at the edge of the road where the headlights didn't illuminate. They had been searching for about 45 minutes when Richard's flashlight hit something reflective. It was Teresa Fenton's bike. By 8.30, a full-scale search was organized and mounted. Family friends, police, neighbors, firefighters, and even volunteer off-duty police officers and firefighters joined in. When word got out that her bike had been found, the search became narrowed in on that area along the River Road and Route 5. The search continued until 2.30 a.m. Teresa hadn't been found, but the search would continue again at 6 a.m. This search consisted of many of the people from before, but also diving teams and men in wetsuits ready to search the river, a neighbor with a helicopter who flew overhead searching woods and clearings, as well as bloodhounds. By 1 o'clock, the divers had searched a large area of the river, still with no sign of Teresa. Everyone was convinced that had Teresa fallen, as initially suspected, there would have been some sign of her. Bloodhounds initially picked up Teresa's scent where her bike had been found, but then became confused and couldn't get a trail. This suggested that Teresa may have left the scene in a vehicle. These intense searches yielded no results. Instead, about 20 hours after her disappearance... Teresa Fenton was found by a fisherman named Tori Walters and his two children. She had been in a wooded section off of Mile Hill Road. This area was a remote area five miles from the Fenton home. She had been unconscious and half-buried, with only an arm visible in the debris and brush that covered that area. Tori said that she had been moaning softly. It was this sound that led to her discovery. Sadly, there would be no happy ending in this case. Her skull was badly indented and smeared with blood. She never regained consciousness and succumbed to her injuries almost exactly 48 hours after her disappearance. After medical examinations, it was confirmed that she had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and left there to die. According to the autopsy report by McKeon, Teresa's death was caused by a blow to the right side of the base of her skull with a blunt instrument. This blow was one of six that she had received to the head. In addition to the blows to the head, there were bruises on her right cheek and lower lip, as well as a broken tooth, suggesting one or more hits to the face. There was also a scrape on her face and a bruise on the right side of her neck, paired with an abrasion on the left side of her neck that were likely caused by strangulation. Very little evidence was found on the Connecticut River Road she had been abducted from. The only evidence left behind was Teresa's bike. Also noted by a new profiler, John Philpin, was the presence of a leaf found in Teresa's waistband. Whoever murdered her 
had removed her clothing, raped her, then replaced her clothing. From this, Philbin was able to ascertain that the killer wasn't frenzied, but instead calm and in control. He was also likely experienced and comfortable with what he'd been doing. More so, he couldn't help but feel that based on the way her body had been carefully placed and partially buried, that she'd been almost anointed afterwards. From this, he hypothesized that they were looking for someone who was moved by religion, touched by ritual and a churchgoer. He then suspected that the killer likely would have changed his behavior following the murders, be it through increased drug or alcohol use, or throwing himself into work and church services. He surmised that someone close to him likely suspected his involvement, and went even further to say that the killer likely lived with his family and had an immature personality. He also said if the killer was on the older range of the spectrum— He had likely left the area to go to school or join the military, and that he would kill during his returns home. He was believed to have been coddled by his mother and either entirely neglected or oppressed by his father through either intense criticism or even some form of physical or sexual abuse. It would be of the utmost importance to this killer to impress other people. Whoever this monster was, he was a local. When his identity finally came out, Philpin believed that the entire town would know who he was, and it would be an eye-opener. Anyone could be a murderer. Even your neighbor. At this point, the entirety of the police force was working tirelessly to find her killer. Philpin even compiled the case materials and sent them over to the FBI's relatively new behavioral science unit in Quantico, Virginia. For months, They received no response save for requests for more materials. He was eventually able to get an agent on the phone who informed them that they wouldn't be creating a profile for the case. Instead, he offered alternate theories. One was that Teresa had been sideswiped by a vehicle and knocked from her bike. This didn't match with a carefully placed bike, her change in location, or the fact that her bike was completely untouched. Another theory was that she'd had a casual encounter with a young man who wanted more than Teresa had been willing to give. The agent described someone between the ages of 17 to 19, slow in school, and probably casually acquainted with Teresa. The third and final interpretation found the facts of the case to be consistent with an assault intended to be sexual from the very beginning. This final theory helped Philpin confirm his suspicions. His initial suspect profile was of someone in their teenage years to early 20s, but this new information from the FBI pushed him to shift the age range upwards to the late 20s or older, aside from these various theories, including that of Philpin. Little was known publicly about the case. According to Police Captain Richard Spear, head of the State Police Criminal Division, the police had a theory. He said, Whoever stopped the girl was able to entice her into the car, so it was probably someone she knew. It was also probably someone with standing in the community. He made a pass at her, she wasn't receptive, and she died. So it was someone who had a lot to lose. He reasoned that a transient or someone she didn't know would have had no reason to kill her merely because he was rebuffed. I have to wonder if he had a reason to assume the killer had been rebuffed at all. 
That seems like such a huge assumption to make with little to no information. And it's not like an assumption like that would have no impact on the investigation. When operating on the belief that the victim knew their killer, your suspect shifts from the entire city of Springfield to the people she knew and interacted with in Springfield. Also, can we just briefly talk about that wording? What do you mean she wasn't receptive and she died? She didn't just die, pal. She was murdered. There's a big fucking difference there, okay? One happens somewhat naturally, and the other one, somebody did something to you. She was murdered. Did not die. Murdered. Thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Finally, I have qualms with the fact that Philpin's profile seems the most fleshed out, but this police officer seemed to just kind of gloss over that one and glom onto the FBI agent's profile, even though it had been pretty clear that he didn't look too closely at the information he'd been sent based off of the fact that one of his assessments was, oh yeah, she was sideswiped and her body was like five miles from her bike, which was placed leaning against a tree very carefully. Like, no logic here. I just, <sighs> Anyways, uh... <laughs> Slight disclaimer here, hindsight is obviously 2020, and criminal profiling was still extremely new at this point. So, in a way, it's understandable that little regard was shown for them. Still, in hindsight land over here, I'm the girl screaming at the television that Spear is wrong to be doing what he's doing. Side note, can we make hindsight land a TV station that has only solved cases from the perspective of someone who knows how it ends and adds in, well, duh, statements? Also, TM. I expect royalties. Thanks! A few weeks after the press conference, a random stroke of luck brought another detail to the forefront. Bobby Johnson, someone who had earlier contributed to the timeline of Teresa's disappearance, was arrested on charges of possessing and intending to sell drugs. In hopes of leniency, his recollection of that night became just a little bit clearer. He had seen more than just the girl on her bicycle approaching the cross-section of the road, as he'd initially told police. This time, he informed them, he had actually looked at Teresa through his rearview mirror and noticed a car. This car had slowed down, stopped, and eventually backed up towards the girl on her bike. He lost sight of both the girl and the car at this point, but he was able to tell them one important piece of information. The vehicle had been a Pontiac Sunbird, and it appeared to be a dull gray. He also informed police that the license plates appeared to be from New Hampshire. A polygraph test indicated that Bobby Johnson was telling the truth. This did cause a bit of a conundrum, however. Other witnesses who had seen a vehicle around the time of Teresa's disappearance had indicated that the car was red. Regardless of the discrepancy, Philpin was now set in his profile. This was, in fact, an older man, and he'd likely killed before, and likely would again. While the intensity of the investigation dwindled due to a lack of new leads, investigator Joseph Esty stated, I do something in the case at least every day that I'm working. I still feel very strongly that we will find out what happened. I have some doubts about a criminal conviction at this point. Flyers with Teresa Fenton's picture and an offer of a reward for the capture and conviction of her murderer were placed around and inside of local shops and markets. A $10,000 reward had been put together with pledges and contributions by hundreds of people. By August of 1982, however, 
Bruce Lawler, the Springfield lawyer and state legislator who handled the reward fund, said that there had been talk of withdrawing the offer and donating the money to a charity instead. He was quoted as saying, I think there's still a lot of intense feeling, but I think it's under the surface a little bit. It's not as apparent as it was following the killing. The primary purpose of a reward is to produce information that might lead police down the right path. The chance of that type of information surfacing after a year decreases substantially. If anybody was going to come forward, they would have done so by now. Now again, from over here in hindsight land, I take issue with this line of reasoning. Obviously, this was a different time, but nowadays we hear about so many cases where someone who was terrified to come forward eventually does. Five, 10, 15 years later, sometimes 20, sometimes 30. Sure, it's not the immediate resolution we hope for, but it does happen There was a woman recently, I can't remember what crime it was, but she came forward and was like, yeah, my husband confessed to killing this woman that he lived with while we were married. I I don't know. But it happens. We're still hoping that somebody comes out and says something about the Delphi case. It, I don't know, just removing, removing a reward because it's been a year and you don't think anybody's going to come forward. Just sits so wrong with me. I don't know. I would just hope that if it were my child who went missing, that people wouldn't renege their donations just because the sense of urgency and pain became distanced to them. It would still be very fresh to me every single day. Any parent who loses a child, whether they're missing and we have no idea what happened or whether they've been murdered, that sense of urgency never goes away. It's a scab that's peeled at every single day. Oh, sorry, I am ranting, but I don't know. This case has me all up in my feels. Fear amongst the community was likely renewed in November of 1982. At the time, Deanna R. Buxton, also referred to as Dana Thurston in The Shadow of Death, The Hunt for a Serial Killer by Philip E. Ginsburg, which is where I do get most of my detailed information from in regards to Deanna's experience. Um, So I will be referring to her as Deanna going forward. So Deanna didn't think twice about hitchhiking. She did it often enough and she had places to be. On November 12th, she was hitchhiking again. She had hoped to visit her boyfriend, Jerry Twitchell, at the prison in Rutland. The prison was about 50 miles from where she lived in Battleboro and definitely too far for a walk. She headed out to get a ride mid-morning and figured she could be back by dark if all went according to plan. It definitely did not. Her ride began when she was picked up by a man in a green van. He took her the first stretch of the way, north up Route 5 to Putney, putting her close to an interstate along the Connecticut River. She walked to the interstate and waited. She didn't wait too long, though. Within five minutes, a man in a blue Nova picked her up and brought her to Rockingham, where Route 103 led toward Rutland. Rockingham was just south of Springfield. She waited for her next ride, and it came along within about 15 minutes. A man in a red car with Vermont plates welcomed her into his vehicle. He appeared to be of average height, maybe five foot eight. He wore a checkered flannel shirt and had short brown hair with that old person side part, Gen Z TikTokers, you know what I'm talking about. I heard what you said. I have a side part. I'm not a fan. Okay. 
<laughs> Moving on. He wore wire-framed glasses and appeared to be in his early 40s. He'd asked her questions about herself, learning that she was a ward of the state. She said that all of her problems were behind her now that she was 17 and didn't go into much detail. Ah, the optimism of a 17-year-old. He was fine that she didn't go into detail, though. He was more than comfortable filling in the silence. He told her he'd been divorced and had three daughters. He also told her he'd been in the Navy and was shot in the shoulder, ankle, and left hand. He didn't elaborate on this. He also told her that his name was Stan. Less than an hour into their drive, they passed the highway sign, Rutland, 13 miles. A little past this, Stan pulled off to a rest stop, saying he needed to use the restroom. After getting out of the car, however, he didn't head towards the restroom. Instead, he reached behind the driver's seat and pulled out a shotgun. He then pointed the two barrels directly at her, saying, Don't try to run away or scream, or I'll kill you. He then got back into the driver's seat and opened the bolt, showing her that the gun was in fact loaded with two green shells. You know I'm not fooling around, he said. It only takes one trigger, and you'll be dead. So do what I say, or I'll kill you. Deanna was convinced that he meant every word of what he'd said. Quick trigger warning here. I know I put one at the beginning of every episode, but this, again, is a really rough one. And we are about to take a turn towards the rapey material, and it's definitely uncomfortable. Uh, so if you need to skip this part, I will definitely understand. I wish that I could, but then you'd have to do a Google search, and that kind of defeats the purpose of me talking about it on a podcast. So... Yeah, if you want to skip, do so now. The drive continued, with the barrel of the shotgun remaining trained on her head. The topic took a shift from the previous small talk. Now, he had sex on the mind. He grabbed a bottle of Colt 45 malt liquor and ordered her to drink it, saying, We'll get drunk, and then we'll have some fun. He then ordered her to remove her undergarments, then put her shirt and jeans back on. She complied, all the while begging him not to hurt her. He replied, As long as you do what I say, there won't be any problem. I highly doubt that was true. Her undergarments, as well as her vest, were thrown into the back seat. He continued to talk to her about things like masturbation, oral sex, and intercourse. He was sure to use the most vulgar terms for all of these, because of course he did. Through all of this, he continued to insist she drink. He intended for her to be drunk. Honestly, he probably wanted her drunk because this piece of shit didn't think he could take a sober 17-year-old girl. But, ugh, I hate him. With one hand on the wheel, he began reaching over and groping her. When he tried to force a hand into her pants, she shoved his hand away. He immediately switched the subject to war. Not so much the subject of war itself, but rather what happens when men are off to war. More specifically, when fighting men have women at their mercy, raping them at will. He then informed her that he liked raping girls, and he wouldn't have any qualms about doing the same to her or killing her if she refused to cooperate. 
He also told her that she wasn't his first. He'd done this to others and had been forced to kill two of them. Now just 20 miles north of where he'd picked her up, he pulled the car over once more. The amount of fear coursing through Deanna's veins must have been paralyzing. He didn't kill her, though. Instead, she was ordered to take over driving. With him no longer focusing on the road, his hands were free to do what they wished to her. And I just have to take a second to applaud this girl. Uh, Hands down, I would have been so messed up in this situation, not just from the alcohol, but like mentally, that I would have immediately crashed the car. And this isn't in a, oh, well, I would have done this so that I could have saved myself situation. No, 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 no. This would be a, I literally would not have been able to function and would have crashed the car in a way that actually killed us both. Uh, so yeah, this is huge props to her because I, I think many people probably would have crashed the car. Deanna didn't crash the car though. Instead, she continued driving as his hands and even his mouth violated her. By this point, they were almost out of the malt liquor as Stan had been drinking it as well. He, he then directed Deanna to take the White River Junction exit and take him to a liquor store. The two entered the liquor store together, Stan keeping Deanna close to his side. While he was making his selection and momentarily distracted, Deanna did her best to get help from a store clerk. She managed to mouth, please help me, while gesturing to the man beside her. The clerk didn't understand, even when Deanna continued. Before she could come up with another plan, Deanna found herself back in the vehicle with him, with Stan behind the wheel. It was now that she realized if she didn't do something fast, she was going to be his third victim. He would rape her, then he would kill her. Thinking fast, Deanna said she was feeling unwell, like she was going to be sick. Not wanting her to vomit in his car, he stopped at the curb in front of a small store in the business district of White River Junction. He told her to run in and get herself some Rolaids. He would be right there, watching. And then he reminded her that he had a gun. As if she could forget, pal. Whether Stan was convinced she was too afraid to disobey him, or he'd actually convinced himself that she was enjoying his company is unknown, but he didn't accompany her into the store. In the store, Deanna counted the customers. There were three men and one woman, as well as the woman behind the counter. In the store, she cried, help me, he's going to kill me. One man had heard her as he was paying for his items and walked out the door. Deanna felt the hopelessness of her situation until the man at the door waved to her, trying to signal to her to come over. He must have thought that somebody in the store was threatening to harm her. After hesitating a moment, she did. She ran over and she grabbed the man, begging him to help her get away from Stan, who she pointed to. The man, my fucking hero, honestly, just glared angrily down at Stan and yelled, what the fuck are you doing to her? Which, good God, I can count. 
I can't count on two hands the amount of times I needed somebody like that in my life. What a guy. Ever the liar? Stan replied, I don't even know her. Not hearing a word he'd said, Deanna ran back into the store and told the clerk to call 911. There was a man with a gun, and he was going to shoot her. Officer John Halpin was called to the progressive market. He'd been told by dispatch that a girl had become hysterical, claiming a man with a gun was trying to kidnap her. I'd just like to take a brief moment to say fuck you to that giant douche of a dispatcher. Like, okay, so firstly, the root of the word hysterical is super fucked up, but also there is somebody crying and begging for help. You, their last line of hope, are calling them hysterical? I just... I understand that thems was the times or whatever, but no, not cool. In the three minutes it took Officer Halpin to get there, her captor had driven away. The only man who had believed Deanna and even defended her against him had also disappeared. She and this man were the only two people to get a good look at Stan. It quickly became clear to Officer Halpin that Deanna wasn't delirious, but rather terrified, and she had in fact been kidnapped. It wasn't some figment of her wild imagination. She had been kidnapped by this person. She was then brought into the station to give a statement. She turned out to be an extremely observant witness, giving officers a thorough description of the man, down to the moles on his face. After the parking lot fiasco, a very inebriated Stan continued to drive the roads he knew so well, until the alcohol really began to hit. Then, he pulled off to the side of a road for a nap. The nap didn't really seem to help, however. When he awoke, he continued driving and came up on a curve too fast. His car went off the road and ended wheels up. And before you get all happy about it, he lived. I know, I know, believe me, I know. Despite not wearing a seatbelt, Stan survived the crash he flagged down a passing woman and asked her to call the police. Once the woman had left, he realized that there was a lot of evidence in his car that could get him into quite a bit of trouble. He set to work quickly grabbing anything he could get his hands on. He didn't stop to think about what he could keep versus what he couldn't and just grabbed anything he could get his hands on. Once his hands were full, he went deeper into the woods. Approximately 200 yards from his car, he created a very shallow hole and dumped the gun and other items into it before covering it with some dirt and leaves. A few moments after returning to his car, state troopers Dan Lavoie and Warner responded near the end of their shift. They took down the information about his accident. The name on his driver's license read Gary L. Schaefer. The car was a four-year-old Pontiac Sunbird, a sporty red one with a white top. The car had been essentially totaled. Now, if you'll remember, the car used in Teresa Fenton's murder was described as red by some witnesses, but gray by Bobby Johnson. Regardless, the two officers who were now eating into their free time, as their shift had ended, didn't put the pieces together. Lavoie finished filling out the accident report and threw it in a basket before heading home. So... With the police report, you would think that the case was close to being solved, right? Wrong. The Vermont Police Department, at the time, had their troopers working long hours when they were on duty, 
as well as being on call even when they were off for five to seven days. Then they would take three to four days off. This shift was Lavoie and Warner's last before a long weekend. Over the next few days, while these two police officers were off duty, dispatchers sent out broadcasts about Stan. Printed notices were put up on station bulletin boards with a description of the man, as well as the vehicle he'd been driving. Deanna was so observant, she was even able to tell police that his vehicle had a pink inspection sticker dated July 24, 1982. There was a Playboy Bunny sticker on one of the windows, and a sheepskin cover on the driver's seat, as well as a blanket in the back seat. Even with all of this information, she wasn't sure on the make of the car. She described it as small and sporty, with a white top like a Mustang. Maybe. Now, all local law enforcement was looking out for a vehicle that matched this description. That Saturday, newspapers printed a report stating that police were on the lookout for an armed man driving a red Mustang car. Now, police were searching for a red car with a white top, literally any make, while the public was just searching for a red Mustang. Police were now also searching for a vehicle that had just been totaled. The car sat behind a Sunoco station near the junction of the interstate and Route 103, which was approximately 10 miles south of Springfield. Had that newspaper article read red sports car, maybe somebody would have known something. Like, some person going to the Sunoco station, maybe, maybe they would have seen it. But no, somebody fixated on the fucking word Mustang, and I'm so mad about it. It's like another one of those situations where you're just screaming at the TV like, no, stop, take out that word, and you can't. By the time officers Lavoie and Warner returned from their time away, the bulletin had become one of the less urgent matters and was no longer at the top of everyone's to-do list. And if you're wondering why the accident report didn't capture anyone's notice, There was no place on accident reports for writing down the color of the vehicle. Should anyone have happened upon it, it would have just appeared to have been a Pontiac Sunbird, and she didn't specifically mention that make of vehicle. Despite the attempted abduction and all of the information Deanna was able to give police, as well as the continued focus on Teresa Fenton's case, the final groundbreaking clue wouldn't come until 19 months after Teresa's murder, and five months after the attempted abduction of Deanna Buxton. Unfortunately, this clue came at the price of one more young girl's life. On Saturday, April 9th, 1983, Katie Richards went across town to spend time with her friend, Rachel Zeitz. The pair of best friends were both 11 years old and had made it through two dance rehearsals that day for an upcoming recital. Now they had time to enjoy themselves and maybe relax a little. The two girls begged Rachel's mother, Judy Zeitz, for permission to go to Athens Pizza 3 to play an arcade game. Initially, Mrs. Zeitz said no, but later acquiesced. Like Teresa Fenton's mother and many other mothers in Springfield, her hesitation came from the recent murders of multiple young girls in the area. Still, the arcade was only a 10-minute walk down Plain Hill Road from the Zeitz home, I'm sure there was likely some false comfort felt due to the close proximity. We all tend to fall victim to the not-in-my-neighborhood trap. As far as we're all concerned, what we have to tell ourselves, home is safe. Rachel's father checked his watch as the girls went out the front door. 
It was 4.47 p.m. when they left for the arcade. The girls arrived at their destination just before 5, hoping to have some fun. They had wanted to play Miss Pac-Man, but some of their friends from school refused to give the two newcomers a turn. Instead, they grabbed two small bags of Doritos and headed for home. One girl wouldn't make it home. As they were walking, Rachel noticed that one particular car had gone past them four or five times. That car was a J2000 Pontiac. They continued on, though, and were rounding a curve in the road on Pedden Road. This area wasn't visible from the main road, Vermont 106, or the nearby Pedden Acres development. It was here that the car stopped alongside them at around 5.15 p.m. Katie asked the driver if he was lost. The driver then asked for directions to the home of someone named Joe Cerniglia. After being told that the girls didn't know who that was or where they lived, he asked how to get to the Springfield Racquetball Club. They were familiar with this location, and Katie gave the man directions. As she did so, the man got out of his light blue vehicle. There was something in his pocket, though no one knows what. Rachel believed it was a gun. Rachel recalled that the man questioned, What if I tell you, if you don't get in the car, I'm going to kill you? Immediately, Rachel turned and ran up the road. When she turned back to check on her friend, she saw Katie Richards climb into the driver's seat, crying. This would be the last time that Rachel Zeitz, or anyone aside from her abductor, saw Katie Richards alive. Immediately, Rachel returned home and told her parents what had happened. Mrs. Zeitz called Katie's mother, Rosalise Thayer, and the two women went to the police. What followed from there was hours of interrogations, before Mrs. Thayer was informed by Police Chief Peter Hurt that there would be no search for Katie. I know. What? The actual fuck. I wish I could tell you that there was some sort of good explanation for this, but there honestly, there, there just isn't. And it's going to get a lot worse, so just buckle the fuck up, because we're in for a fucking ride. <sighs> this case, in general, plus this particular aspect of it, has made me so livid that I stopped researching and writing like 10 times in the making of this episode, because my blood pressure was just absolutely fucking done with this planet. It was like, yeet me off my mortal coil. I am done. I am ready to be with the gods now. <laughs> During this time, the man Katie knew his dad, Charlie, was hurrying back from a meeting out of town. It was still light out, so he was hopeful that he could take his private plane out to conduct an air search of his own. Hurt ordered Mr. Thayer not to do so, and even went so far as to send a police officer home with the terrified parents to monitor their phone and ensure they didn't call others to begin a search. The officer also blocked their driveway with his car to prevent them from leaving to conduct a search. In a later lawsuit against Hurt, Mrs. Thayer maintained that Hurt told her there would be no search for her daughter the night of the abduction because searches destroy evidence. She also alleged that Hurt told her, We know who he is. After we find her body, we'll get him. This lawsuit ended in a settlement, supposedly because it was cheaper to pay out than to continue paying for a defense. I think the lack of a search combined with the payout tells us all we need to know. 
Many believe that Hertz' perceived prioritization of evidence over preservation of life stemmed from the unsolved murder rate in Vermont at the time. Between 1957 and Schaefer's first murder, the killers of more than 30 people had eluded capture. In many of those cases, police believed they knew who the killers were, but didn't have the evidence required to build a strong enough case to make an arrest. It seems likely to me that finding evidence to convict the guy who killed now three girls was more important to him than saving Katie's life and having another unsolved murder on his hands, which is just the most upsetting and devastating thing to me I have probably ever heard. According to an article in the Burlington Free Press, it took Springfield police more than an hour to notify state police of Katie's abduction. No roadblocks were set up, and instead of dispatching police to patrol the area, they were sent door-to-door in the area of the abduction. Mrs. Thayer argued that police treated the disappearance as a missing persons case rather than a kidnapping, which I would have to agree. Uh, (laughs) Given the information that I was able to find, it, it literally reads that way. Like, he... It just doesn't seem like he took this seriously at all, despite the fact that two other girls had been murdered. I just, I know I'm adding a lot of commentary. I'm sorry. I'm very passionate about this. It just makes me mad. The police chief, Hurt, continued to pat himself on the back, however, saying he was very, very pleased with the department's response. We were very rapid. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you were. Rapid to utilize your last fucking brain cell, pal. 19 hours after her abduction, around noon on Sunday, Katie Richards was found in a wooded area 2.2 miles from the abduction site off of Baltimore Road. Her parents weren't even called. Instead, Mrs. Thayer called the police around 2 p.m. She recalled that Hurt told her, We have found the deceased body of a young girl wearing her clothes on the Baltimore Road. You cannot go there. McKeon was the medical examiner in this case as well. The autopsy report said that Katie's death was caused by one blow to the head with a blunt instrument. Unlike with the other girls, this was the only head wound, according to the report. Around the same time Katie's body was found, police were gearing up to make an arrest led to the suspect by Rachel Zeitz. She gave police the exact description of the man's car, as well as that the assailant had yellow-tinted glasses with wire frames and was about her father's height. She also recalled that the man had been wearing a bright red sweatshirt with lettering on it. She said, I thought it was some kind of football shirt. I thought it said the Dolphins. I remembered, though, that my friend Joel DeLorenzo had one just like it. After receiving this information, police went to the De Lorenzo home and found the aforementioned sweatshirt. The lettering on the front had not said the Dolphins, but instead said Christadelphians. Within Springfield, there was a Christadelphian church, which had only 60 members. This sweatshirt was associated with a specific youth gathering they had put together. Police pursued this lead and began calling some of the group's leaders. By that Sunday... Word had spread through the church that the police were searching for one of their members. One of the Christadelphian leaders police spoke to, James Millay, recalled that he had seen church member Gary Lee Schaefer driving near the area close to the time of Katie's abduction. As police continued making phone calls, Sunday services were convening. Schaefer was in attendance. 
Upon his arrival a little after 9 a.m., upon his arrival a little after 9 a.m., one of the teens who had attended the gathering greeted him. She'd grown close to Schaefer, as he'd been especially friendly to her, even advising her about life. Yeah, I believe that. The pair had long heart-to-hearts, and he'd even written letters to her that referred to the Bible and popular songs to help teach her life lessons. She'd even seen Schaefer the day prior, around 3 p.m. At that time, he'd confided in her, saying that he was unable to see his adopted daughter's baby, and he was quite upset about that as well as the fact that tomorrow would be the anniversary of his father's death. I think he was actually upset because he just fucking murdered a girl, but that's fine, I guess. This perceived closeness caused her to jokingly ask him on Sunday morning, Hey, are the police after you too? She then explained that police were asking about the sweatshirts. He excused himself to the bathroom, saying he wasn't feeling well, where he purged the contents of his stomach. And I would just like to address the fact that Deanna Buxton didn't even throw up while he had her hostage, had his hands all over her, was forcing her to drive, probably to her death, and was threatening to rape and murder her. But here's this little bitch throwing up when he's literally being given a heads up. And that is in no way me saying that someone who throws up in times of duress is weak. I just think that Schaefer here is being a little troglodyte, and there's literally no excuse for it. While this occurred, Detective Mike LeClaire met with James Millay. He showed James the composite sketch made up from Rachel Zeitz's description of Katie Richards' murderer. Millay took one look and said, Oh, sure, that looks just like Gary Schaefer. Who, by the way, is James Millay's cousin? James was then able to give police a time frame, as well as confirm that he had been wearing his Christadelphian sweatshirt and driving a light blue vehicle. After his little fit at the church, instead of doing the intelligent thing and getting the fuck out of Dodge, thankfully, Schaefer returned home. Like a worthless soda. At almost the same time, the discovery of Katie's body had been made. Mike LeClaire and another Springfield detective, Doug Johnston, arrived at the Schaefer home. Several police waited in cars outside the Schaefer home, out of view of the residents, but ready to jump into action should they need to. The officers were led into the home by Schaefer's mother, whom he lived with, who then called up to her son in his room. The first words out of his mouth were, I've been sick, before he excused himself to the bathroom once more. He again threw up as police listened through the door. They'd been expecting some kind of escape attempt, but there was none. The detectives then sat down with Schaefer and asked him about his whereabouts that Saturday. Schaefer, who worked as a mechanic for Thomas Sousey, a car dealer in North Springfield, said he had been with his boss in Rutland picking up cars for the dealership. He'd said that the cars were actually late in arriving, so they hadn't arrived back home until sometime after 9 o'clock. His mother, who stood nearby, the ultimate helicopter parent, confirmed that he had in fact left around 2 p.m. and returned around 9.15 p.m., she told police he'd been wearing blue pants and his red Christadelphian sweatshirt. He'd also been driving her car, a light blue Pontiac J2000. The officers allowed Schaefer to finish his version of events before informing him that they had already spoken to his boss. His boss had said that Schaefer had not been with him at that time. They also informed Schaefer that a witness had placed him in town around the time of Katie's abduction. 
Gary Lee Schaefer was then placed under arrest. He went without a fight. But remember, his victims are 11 and 13-year-old girls, plus an attempted 17-year-old girl who, even while she was drunk, outsmarted him. And she probably could have fought his dumbass off. So not surprised he didn't attempt to put up a fight against police officers who were probably his size. Takes a real man to pick on little girls, don't you think? After his arrest, LeClaire and other officers searched Schaefer's home. His sweatshirt, the official Christadelphian sweatshirt, was taken from his bedroom as evidence, along with a pair of blue pants believed to be the ones he was wearing when Katie was taken and subsequently murdered. On these pants, they found a hair that looked to be the same color as Katie Richards' hair, dusty blonde. Schaefer was held at the Woodstock Community Correctional Center under $50,000 bail on a charge of kidnapping a minor. Once those charges were eventually raised to also murder and rape, the bail was up to $75,000. The investigation for more evidence was in full swing now. After the discovery that the composite sketch of the man who molested Deanna Buxton closely resembled Schaefer, police set to work locating his vehicle, the one he had crashed. Now that they had a name, it was easy enough to connect the dots. Katie's murderer was driving a blue car because his red one had been totaled. On Tuesday, April 12, 1983, the police impounded Schaefer's vehicle, which had been moved from the Seneca station to a junkyard in Rutland, where it sat, untouched, for months. The car was obviously in a state of disrepair, but Deanna was able to confirm that it was the vehicle she had been in. The colors were the same, the Playboy Bunny sticker was where she'd remembered it to be, and her denim jacket and red and blue vest were still in the car. It seems that when Schaefer, drunk and in a panic, attempted to clear evidence from his vehicle, he missed some crucial pieces. Hurt said at a news conference the following day that stains resembling blood had been lifted from Schaefer's car. The stains were to be tested by the state crime laboratory. Hurt felt optimistic that the stains would connect Schaefer to the murder of Teresa Fenton. Real fucking glad you feel optimistic about something, buddy. State Police Sergeant Robert Haynes also stated that on that very morning, two state police divers searched a small pond near the site where Katie Richards' body was found for a murder weapon. This search proved unsuccessful. Hurt then acknowledged that the weapon was difficult to narrow down as it could have been any blunt instrument including a rock. At this point, Windsor County State's attorney, prosecutor in this case, William S. Bowes, stated that Schaefer was so significantly depressed as to be considered a suicide risk. Because of course he was. He was placed in maximum security away from the general prison population and was under close watch. At his initial hearing, Schaefer arrived wearing dirty white sneakers, brown pants, and a flannel shirt. Real good look there, buddy. At this hearing, he pleaded not guilty to both the kidnapping of Katie Richards and the kidnapping of Deanna Buxton. No further charges were filed against him at that time, as they still lacked the evidence required to meet a murder charge against him for Katie Richards. As of May 5th, they were also no closer to tying Schaefer to the murder of Teresa Fenton. In a news report from May 5th, Prosecutor Bose said that the samples taken from Schaefer's vehicle, as well as samples taken from his boots, turned up blood. 
He didn't elaborate on whose blood it might be, or which sample, if not both, the blood had shown up in. He did, however, say that he knew the blood types that were pulled in the sample. Further information regarding the multiple cases here is very sparse, as a gag order was placed on any information regarding Schaefer in order for him to receive a fair trial. In fact, it even created an entirely separate court case to figure out which was more important, a fair trial or the public's right to know. (laughs) So, yeah, there's lots of court cases involved with this, as there should be. In early October, Schaefer apparently wrote prosecuting attorney Bose a letter stating that he believed he had murdered Richards and Fenton. This statement was thrown out for some reason, probably chain of evidence. I couldn't find anything. On Monday, December 5th, 1983, Gary Lee Schaefer said through his attorney in a Vermont district court that he wished to clear himself in the eyes of God. Don't be fooled, though. This wasn't about God. He changed his plea from innocent to no contest to secondary murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping in a plea bargain arrangement. A stipulation of this plea bargain was that no charges could be filed against Schaefer in connection with the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Teresa Fenton, provided that Schaefer wrote a detailed confession of her murder. So basically, he bitched out. Bose said that his case had been weakened when a discrepancy in the Vermont law statutes dismissed a felony murder charge against Schaefer in regards to Katie Richards' murder. This prevented a first-degree murder charge. Schaefer's attorney said during the hearing that he had substantial evidence to prove that Schaefer had been temporarily insane when he killed Richards, and that it was his client's desire to go ahead with the plea bargain. He stated that Schaefer had no recollection of trying to harm Katie and that, quote, it is his belief that he was acting in a way that had an interrelationship with things that happened to him as a child, end quote. This statement was not elaborated on. (laughs) I just, uh, I, mm. it came out in this trial that Katie Richards had also been raped prior to her murder. According to Mrs. Zeitz, during the entirety of the trial, Rachel insisted upon sitting in the front row. She said she wanted to get a good look at him. She stared at Schaefer for most of the sentencing. When Rosalie Thayer took the stand, Katie's mother, she said, as long as this man lives, he will feel compelled to destroy the lives of innocent children by as odious and obscene means as he can devise. I don't want any child so tortured such as she was ever again. He must never be allowed near another young child. Schaefer's lawyer insisted, some may be skeptical about this, but Gary understands that society should inflict punishment upon him. I suspect the court knows that he's likely to feel more pain from his sense of guilt and sense of confusion than from any sentence. I'm going to say that I fully understand that defense attorneys, even of the guilty, are doing an extremely important job. An inadequate defense could lead to cases being thrown out and killers being set free. It's happened far too many times, but the fact that he said this JFWBF is more likely to feel any pain at all from a sense of guilt or confusion is simply vomitous to me. He won't even vocally state that he for sure did it just that he thinks he might have. Like, I'm sorry, but Brev doesn't feel any guilt over it at all. He knows he did it. He remembers all of it. If you recall, Philpin's profile of him, which 
<laughs> turned out to be pretty fucking spot on, if you ask me. Uh, flat out stated that this was controlled. It was not frenzied. Somebody who is not in control of their own actions literally does not have control by definition. So, yeah, no. Bitchfish did it. Bitchfish knows Bitchfish did it. And Bitchfish will never feel guilt over it because he is a bitchfish. That is why he is called a bitchfish. Okay, bitchfish. In January of 1984, Schaefer was sentenced to the maximum term for murder at that time in Vermont, 30 years to life with the possibility of parole. Now, it did say that he was sentenced twice, but they wouldn't go into detail on it and that those sentences would be served concurrently. So I can only believe that he was technically sentenced to 60 years to life, but because they're served concurrently, it's still only 30 years to life. So, he was sentenced to 30 years to life with the possibility of parole. Bo stated, I do not think he will be paroled at the time of his minimum sentence. I think he should go to jail for the rest of his life for what he's done. A fucking men. Okay. So, who was Gary Lee Schaefer? As far as most in the town were concerned, Schaefer was unremarkable. He lived a quiet life and had no real social life outside of the church. His documented childhood was rather uneventful. He'd moved to Springfield with his family when he was around 10 years old. Philpin's spot-on profile of Schaefer, combined with the statement from Schaefer's attorney, do imply that there may have been some darkness in his childhood, whether that was the physical abuse or sexual abuse or the emotional abuse inflicted by an overcritical or absent father. No one knows. After high school, Schaefer served in the Navy for 10 years. All that is known about his performance in the Navy was a single note someone had written on an affidavit submitted at his arraignment. The notation read, Had trouble in Navy. Police opened investigations into missing or murdered girls in any area he'd been stationed at. I could find no information in regards to these investigations or whether or not anything was turned up by them. I can only surmise from the lack of documentation that means nothing came of them. I could be wrong, or the cases could have simply not been tied together yet, as we've seen, particularly in the last two years. Now is the time for cold cases to finally be solved. Schaefer returned to Springfield, Vermont, two years after his service ended and rejoined the Christadelphian church. Reports here differ slightly. In one report, I found that Schaefer had been disfellowshipped from the church for marrying Arlene Schaefer in 1972, which went against church rules regarding marrying a divorcee, because apparently you can be a divorcee and be fine, but the second you marry a divorcee, oh, huh, heaven forbid. Heavens to Betsy, my delicate sensibilities, I cannot. The book I referenced stated that he'd recently been elected as a custodian of the church. Either way, he was a highly active member of the church who attended Sunday services as well as Wednesday night prayer meetings. Unsurprisingly, he also paid special interest to the youth group. In fact, three days out of the week, he would take groups of young people to visit with the elderly at nearby nursing homes. How horrified do you think their parents were to find that out? <laughs> Friends and family of Schaefer stated that there were two sides to him. There was the Gary they saw at church and the Gary they saw out of it. At church, he was outgoing, friendly, and dedicated to the youth. At his job and in his social life outside of church, he was quiet, 
almost a recluse. According to his friends, though, he loved to go on drives in his car, blaring rock and roll music as he went. The next part I'm literally only including because it grossed me the fuck out, and if I have to live with it, so do you. According to Roger Schaefer, Gary's brother, when Gary was stationed in the Navy at Great Lakes, he became attached to the band Sticks. Apparently, Schaefer would tell people that their song called She Cares sort of describes his life. Why does this gross me out? Well, here's part of the lyrics. I worked hard to be the greatest lover. I wanted to be sure I was her only one. That's how I thought it was to be done. But I went too far, assumed too much. The need to feel a younger one's touch seemed important then. Oh, what a fool I've been. On its own, it's pretty obviously a song about a guy cheating on his partner with a younger lover. Shitty, but okay, I guess. It's not the first song about cheating. It won't be the last. But when pairing those lyrics with Gary Lee Schaefer knowing what we know now, it's simply vomitous. Like, no, (laughs) I will never, ever, I've never listened to that song and now I never will. That's just not going to happen. In one interview, Roger also told police that Schaefer and his wife, Arlene, had been in Springfield the weekend of Nastasia's disappearance and may have stayed at the Howard Johnson Motel. A manager of the hotel was unable to locate the records for the nights between August 27th and 29th, 1979, and Arlene Schaefer declined to comment. She even went so far as to say, as far as I'm concerned, I was never married, which, girl, what a mood. Disown them and run. I mean, maybe help the police solidify a timeline and, like, convict him of murder, but, like, otherwise just run. Look the other way. Run. Since his initial statement, John waffled. He said that he no longer believes that his brother had been in Springfield at that time. Roger said, direct quote, that's what he tells me, that he wasn't here that weekend. I know he came up sometime during that period. I just don't know when. I really couldn't say, to be honest with you, whether he was in town. I can't see why they would want to pin it all on Gary, but if he was in town and I knew for a fact, I would suspect it myself. I really don't know. I I really don't. Frankly, I wouldn't believe anything any one of my siblings said if I found out they were, without a doubt, raping and murdering people while living under the same roof as me. Or on Pluto, for that matter. They would just lose all credibility in my book. Like, how can you believe somebody who is capable of doing all of those things while you live with them, even if you don't live with them? It should be said that despite his uncertainty, Roger did make himself available to police to try and clear things up as best as he could. At the time of his arrest, Schaefer was divorced and living with his mother and his brother Roger. His and their mother's feelings towards Gary remained very clouded and confused. As of Schaefer's mother's obituary in 2008, Schaefer was alive and well. One unverified source on Twitter said that as of November 30th, he was at Tallahatchie County Correctional in Mississippi, though I could find no verification of that, as the website for the facility is less than friendly. In the original release of this episode, I had said that Schaefer was killed in prison on December 3rd, 1995. However, that was a mistake. I unfortunately got that piece of information wrong during my research. 
The death I initially cited belonged to Gerard John Schaefer, who came up often during my research for this case, as he was a far more well-known serial killer. I did a pretty good job keeping them separate, but failed to do so in this instance. I've edited this episode with correct information in hopes of preventing the further spread of misinformation at my hands. I also wanted to take a quick minute to thank Caroline, who reached out to me in regards to this incorrect information. I truly appreciate it. Peter Hurt, a.k.a. Captain Douchewad, lost his position as police chief after the lawsuit was settled and went off to be head of security on a college campus. I don't remember the name of the college campus. I know I did read it, but he was not important enough to me to mention it. So, (laughs) whoops. Sherry Nastasha was just 13 years old at the time of her murder. I couldn't find much by way of statements about her, but from my research, I gather that she was a loving older sister and a fiercely independent young girl who likely would have become an amazing woman. 12-year-old Teresa Fenton was described as bright and perky and an exceptional student, very good in all her classes. She was active in the chorus, cheerleading, and band. She had also been named Student of the Month several times in sixth grade and was looking forward to beginning junior high the Wednesday following her death. Katie, 11 years old, had just been named Student of the Month at school and had been looking forward to her 12th birthday. She'd also been looking forward to her upcoming dance recital and wearing a special tutu with sequins her mother had made specially for the occasion. Katie was buried in the tutu that she loved never having gotten a chance to perform in it. (sighs) This has been the cursed and excruciating tale of the brutal murder of three young girls and the sexual assault of another at the hands of some fucking guy who couldn't cope with his bullshit problems. I know, that wasn't at all catchy, it wasn't creative, Uh, I'm honestly just so pissed off and sad that I couldn't come up with anything else. So, sorry, I know, it was lame. Um, all I can say is, uh, hug your loved ones a little harder today, or zoom them harder. That's not a thing, but you get me. For more curse content, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at ThriceCursePod. For just $5 a month, you can get ad-free episodes on Patreon, plus access to a patron-only discussion channel in the Discord server. Or for only $2 a month, you can earn all of my love. There aren't really any perks beyond keeping me caffeinated to write 16-page scripts such as this one, uh, but it is appreciated, so I don't know. Or I'll just keep crying for free. It's fine. I mean, I'd probably be doing it anyways, even if it wasn't for the podcast. Oh, lovely. All of you have probably left by now. You're just like, this girl is too much. I'm done. I'm done with it all. It's fine. I don't even know who I'm talking to anymore. It's... You guys... I haven't been sleeping. This case is a lot. Okay. You can also get your hands on some Thrice Curse merch on thricecursepod.com. I am in the process of getting all of the merch items switched over and creating product descriptions and making sure all of the pricing is okay. So everything's a little bit wonky right now and there aren't as many options, but I am working on it. It is coming. Everything will be great and fun and lovely. Uh, I also learned something super fun. So on my website, you can become a member so that you can get emails letting you know when there's a new blog post, as well as actually being able to comment on the blog post. And you know me, I am 
a fiend for acceptance and love and people telling me that I'm doing good. So if you want to leave nice comments on my posts or have discussions on the posts, please go ahead and sign up for that. Uh, yeah, it's a fun new feature that I've apparently had this whole time that I knew nothing of because I don't know what I'm doing. So definitely do that while you are checking out the photos for this week's episode. Finally, don't forget to join us in the Facebook group by clicking the Facebook symbol on my website. It will take you straight to the group. It is a little bit quiet there right now, but I'm hoping we can start getting some fun conversations going. Uh, oh, also, (laughs) also, if you want to leave a review, either Apple or on Facebook, I would truly appreciate it. I mean, I am the only one who reads them, but it does bump up Thrice Cursed in the chart so that more people can find the podcast, which would be really helpful for me. So if you go ahead and do that, that would be great. All right. (laughs) That is all that I've got. I know it was a lot. I'm going to go drink like eight glasses of wine now or something. Anything to take the edge off at this point, right? (laughs) Meth, maybe? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do meth. I've never even smoked pot. I'm, I'm clean as a whistle. Whistles are actually filthy. Where did that come from? Anyways, until next time, keep your curses hexy and your hex is sexy. If you're turning, turning, oh, oh, this is going to be a good one. I can feel it. Today's tale starts off with 13. We would challenge her to do a, uh, by 830, a full scale search was organized in mountain, mountain, a full scale search was organized and mountain. Yes, mountain. The fuck-ups in this episode are surely mountain, that's for sure. By one o'clock, the drivers had... Drivers, oh my god. Very little evidence was found on the Connecticut River Road she'd been abducted. She was abducted. She didn't wait long, though. Within five minutes? Five minutes? She was then brought into the statement. Into the statement? Ugh. Despite the attempted abduction, ad- God, why do I keep trying to say abduction? Despite the, ad- <sighs> the two girls begged Rachel's mother, Z- Judy Zeitz, to. Pr- <sighs> no roadblocks were set up, and instead of dispatching police to patrol within Springfield, there was a Christadelphian church. What had only si- Whit had. They'd been expecting some kind of ex- ex- escape. <laughs> In fact, it even created an entirely separate court. In fact, it even... Com- Philpin spot on profile of Shaper. Shaper. Oh, my God. The death I initially cited belonged to Gerard. But why did I think I was saying that wrong? Mike and I hope you enjoyed that episode of Thrice Cursed. If you like our show, head over to whichever podcast service you use and hit subscribe. Rate and review the show. And let her know, Brew Crime sent you. Remember, you can always find us on all of the social media, for better or worse. You can get us at Brew Crime. Leave a rating or a review wherever you listen, and come say hi to us. You can also find us at www.brewcrime.com and on Patreon by searching, yep, Brew Crime. <laughs> Don't say we didn't make it easy for you. Any money goes directly back to the show in the form of software and equipment to make this show even better. Thank you, everyone, and we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming starting in February. Until then, brew them hard and brew them strong.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.